For me, the distinction between palliative care and a palliative approach is really a palliative approach is not a specialty. It's really, it's an approach that, you know, wherever patients happen to be in our healthcare system, that we would actually take the principles of palliative care. We would integrate them upstream into somebody's illness trajectory, embed that in care and contextualize based on the person's situation or the setting in which they're being cared for. That opened up a lot of space to consider a whole lot of people that we were missing who could really um, benefit. And that research initiative was really meant to kind of open up the space to reconsider and in some ways bring back the philosophy of palliative care into care generally for you know anybody facing a, a kind of a, an illness that would limit their life expectancy. Welcome to season two of Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious illness and health-related situations as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. Palliative and end-of-life care is regarded in the Western world as a necessary service to which everyone is entitled. And yet, if we look closely, significant inequities exist. People living on the margins of societal norms, such as those who are homeless and without support, do not have equal access to such care. In British Columbia, Canada, one nurse has led the call for change so that people who are precariously housed and without resources can access the compassionate end-of-life care they require. Dr. Kelly Stajahar is that nurse. Kelly is a Canada Research Chair in Palliative Approaches to Care in Aging and Community Health. She's a professor in the School of Nursing and Institute on Aging and Lifelong Health at the University of Victoria. She's worked in oncology, palliative care, and gerontology for 30 years as a practicing nurse, educator, and researcher. She's lead investigator on multiple research projects, including international research collaboratives on family caregiving, integrating a palliative approach to care across health sectors, and studies on access to palliative and end-of-life care for people facing structural vulnerabilities. So Kelly, thanks so much for uh, this chat about a really interesting aspect of palliative care and a palliative approach to care, one that we haven't really explored or dared to explore, and that is around care of people who are outside of the mainstream, maybe the, the groups that get most access to palliative care. And before that, I just wondered if you would talk about the terms that we're using, a palliative approach to care versus palliative care, and and how that came to be. Because I know you've been a leader in moving that language ahead, both in Canada and internationally. Yeah, I, I think um, part of the distinction between palliative care and a palliative approach to care probably comes from my own practice experience. You know, for the 17 or so years that I spent working clinically in palliative care, one of the things that I really noticed um, 
was that there were populations of people that were not being seen by mainstream palliative care services. And I think I saw that because um, even though I worked clinically in palliative care as a, a clinical nurse specialist, I was never attached to a formal palliative care program. So a lot of the patients that I saw were people who were um, in ICUs and were on medical units and hospitals. And, and my role as a clinical nurse specialist was kind of a community hospital role. So I also saw lots of people that um, were in community who uh, weren't kind of diagnosed with diseases that we would typically see in palliative care at that time, mainly people with cancer. And at the same time, it seemed to me people weren't accessing palliative care. These patients and their families weren't accessing palliative care. The healthcare providers around them were not referring people to palliative care. And, and also um, for some folks, um, there, there's not a, a super delineated trajectory and so the, you know, the idea around a palliative approach to care, which actually first kind of was written about from um, a Canadian nurse who was in Australia, uh, Dr. Linda Christensen. And it was really, you know, to recognize that there are people out there who could really benefit from some of the values and philosophies that are embedded within palliative care. So that kind of notion of, a focus on quality of life, a focus on helping people to live as well as they can up until they, the time in which they die, focusing on the person and their family as a whole unit of care and, and, uh, and attention to, you know, impeccable symptom management. And it seemed to me when I was seeing those people with, you know, advancing COPD or heart failure um, or multiple sclerosis that was advancing that some of these core tenets of what we would see in palliative care kind of specialty could really benefit those patients um, if applied earlier on. And so we really, um, I think for, you know, uh, over a decade, um, we ran a research initiative in British Columbia that really looked at how do we integrate perspectives from palliative care early and upstream in a person's illness trajectory and really embed those principles in care and, and really adapt them based on that particular person. So, you know, we always say like, how we might think about pain as a symptom in cancer might be actually quite different for somebody with COPD who doesn't have pain, but might have breathlessness and is not dying in the next six months, but actually could still really benefit from having advanced care planning conversations, could really benefit from having their symptoms managed in a way that enhanced their quality of life. For me, the distinction between palliative care and a palliative approach is really a palliative approach is not a specialty. It's really, it's an approach that, you know, wherever uh, patients happen to be in our healthcare system, that we would actually take the principles of palliative care. Um, we would, we would integrate them upstream into somebody's illness trajectory 
uh, embed that in care and contextualize based on the person's situation or or the setting in which they're being cared for. And I think, you know, that opened up a lot of space to consider uh, a whole lot of people that we were missing who could really um, benefit. And that research initiative was really meant to kind of open up the space to reconsider uh, and in some ways, I think, bring back the philosophy of palliative care into care generally um, for, for, you know, anybody facing a, a, a kind of a, an illness that would limit their life expectancy. You know, I think mainstream palliative care, of which I hold in really high regard, has really been operationalized as a service as opposed to a philosophy. And so, you know, really working in the sense of a palliative approach to care was meant to bring those kind of philosophical and value kind of um, approaches to care back into care generally for for folks who were facing an illness of which, you know, they would eventually decline, but maybe a little bit their trajectories being a little bit longer than than somebody that was diagnosed with a metastatic cancer. So using the term palliative in terms of what you've just been talking about is not a signal to people that death is near. And yet I think that that is... See, I've never thought of palliative as that, but I think that's the way it's been taken up, uh, you know, both generally in the public, but also... Um, you know, also in health care as well. So, and I think, you know, some of that is related to a little bit to, you know, having to delineate boundaries uh, between services, which to me has always been a bit problematic. And it, it's a little bit why I, I, I said earlier that one of the benefits of working in palliative care, but not being in a mainstream palliative care service was that it opened up the space for me to practice in ways that um, that I might otherwise not have been able to do if if I had to sit in a box in a silo of care. And I think, you know, part of it is that throughout my whole nursing practice, I've worked in so many areas like, you know, my entry into palliative care was in the AIDS epidemic. Well, there was people dying all over the place. Not everybody got specialized palliative care and in long-term care. You know, people that are in long-term care beds these days are in long-term care, you know, for less than two years generally, and they're not being discharged. They're dying in long-term care. And I don't think we need specialist care, uh, except in, you know, maybe some extreme situations, Um but that you know everybody that works in healthcare actually should should be having this uh, orientation around a palliative approach to care. So I think that that's really important because what you're saying is it's not an either or situation that you don't have to get palliative care or nothing else that that it's integrated, and that's a challenge in the systems in which we work now that we can certainly be putting some energy into I know there's not a lot of energy for for a lot of that these days but and yet it's so needed so that idea of integration into people who are not actively dying 
And so that's a big shift that you're that you're challenging us. Like I've worked with so many nurses who, for example, work on medical units in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And I would say medical beds in hospitals, probably at least 50% of the patients that are in those beds are patients that could benefit from a palliative approach to care. And I think when you open up the space for nurses on those units and the team on those units to consider uh, you know, that there may be other things that can be done. You know, I remember a project that we were doing in a in a small hospital in British Columbia. And we were working with a a group of staff on a medical unit who had Mm -hmm. about 70% of their patients actually were patients that could benefit from a palliative approach to care. And they were, the, the staff were very distressed because they were doing things to these patients that they felt um, were of not a lot of value. You know, we worked with them and, People often think, oh, God, that's just another big thing that we have to do. The, the the biggest intervention that we did on that unit that had the biggest impact was they, every day they had, you know, um, they had huddles and every week they, they did rounds on uh, and discussed all the patients on the unit. We had, um, I can't remember if it was the social worker or the physiotherapist who was there consistently always just ask the, that surprise question, which, you know, is not the best question, but but just at, in rounds would say when they were talking about a patient, they would start with, you know, would we be surprised if this person died in the next six months to a year? It wasn't that they were trying to prognosticate. It was just a way if, you know, and if somebody said, no, I wouldn't be surprised at all, then it helped to reframe care. Okay, and ask different questions like, what are we doing here with this patient? Maybe, you know, this person with uh, advanced renal disease doesn't understand that, like, they're not going to fully get better and that, you know, things are going to progress in a downward trajectory, maybe slowly, but maybe we ought to be orientating our care toward understanding what's most important for people, to understanding, like, what kinds of treatments do people want to continue to have? And, and if they have them or they don't have them, what are the trade-offs? And those are the kinds of conversations and questions that people who work in palliative care have all the time. It's, we're very used to that kind of conversation with patients and families. Um, but when those questions, even as a team on a medical unit, are not posed, nobody thinks of them. So we just keep going along and doing care without taking a larger look at what's the overall goal here for this person. And, so and families and patients, they know that, you know, things are going in certain directions and they have questions. Um, and I don't know, people often talk about, well, you know, Patients and families don't want to talk about death, but actually, I think it's providers that actually in our healthcare system that don't want to talk about death because patients and families are talking about it amongst themselves. We we've seen that in our studies on advanced care planning. Yes, and that. So I think I'm hearing you say that nurses have these conversations that they are not strictly the conversations 
that physicians have. Nurses have these conversations. I mean, nurses are in really uh, unique positions, I think, because, you know, when you're a provider that sees people over time, you start to recognize patterns. And, you know, I always say when I'm working with nurses in practice, like people, people ask, they're asking questions about their illness, but they're asking them in different ways. And, you know, part of the skill of being a nurse and uh, and building relationships with patients and families, which is a key part of nursing practice, part of it is listening with intention. So somebody might say, you know, just on an off-the-cuff comment, yeah, I, I don't know, things just don't seem to be going very well. So, you know, we could slough that off and go, oh, which is a typical response, which is, oh, you know, don't worry, like, you know, hopefully tomorrow you'll have a better day. But actually, if we were listening with intention, we would be saying to that patient or family member, well, tell me more about that. And I think we're afraid of those conversations. We're afraid because we think it's gonna they're going to take forever and we're pressed for time when we work in an acute care medical unit. Nurses often feel that they don't have that they they need permission to have those kind of conversations. And I often say it, it it's not, we don't need permission to have conversations with patients and families. We're not prognosticating. We're we're having a conversation with people who, you know, are seeking answers to things that um, you know, that they're having trouble finding anybody to talk to about. And that's all embedded in the um, tapestry of practice, that it's it's uh, part of the glue that's that's holding uh, care together, really. Uh, and yet it's the individual tasks that tend to be the focus. Even with the work that I do with nursing students, I mean, almost from the beginning, you know, we, as students get into their clinical practice experiences, they're enculturated with, we have no time and we need to get these tasks done. And of course, time is limited. And yes, there's lots of skill uh, that is involved in nursing. But I think the thing is, is that if you watch what I would call expert nurses in practice, you know, they are able to practice in a way that takes account of the time that they have, skills that they need to do. And they they deeply know that if they get to know uh, the people that they're caring for, that those tasks and everything become a lot easier and their patients get better care and they are much more fulfilled in their jobs. You know, the moral, the moral distress that, that nurses face is as a result of not uh, feeling like they've been able to do what they know they want, they think that they need to do to mm -hmm. promote, you know, somebody's mm -hmm. healing or health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of comes out in kind of feeling really tired at work, starting to feel really grumpy at work. And we, we just need to get, I mean, it's why I've always loved working in palliative care, because there's a val there's a really high value placed on relationships. And patients and families don't expect us to spend buckets of time with them they actually don't want to like we've seen we've we found in studies they don't want us to spend buckets of time with them but it's the time that we have and how we use that time um to actually just really show how that we are really deeply invested and interested in them as a person so 
I'd like to shift our conversation over to a group that you mentioned at the beginning around, uh, you know, outside of the mainstream. So uh, folks that we haven't usually seen in traditional specialist palliative care settings. We have a growing number in Canada of people who do not have a permanent home, um, who don't have uh, access or think they don't have access to care. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how is it that you started to shift over and uh, think about a different group of people who might be requiring the care that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, in a way it was a shift and in a way it wasn't because as I mentioned earlier, I I began my career in the day of HIV and AIDS. Um, and I actually was became very involved in the AIDS community in the kind of social justice activism of AIDS. Um, I spent a lot of my volunteer time in aid service organizations, providing clinical assessments for people, supporting people who were dying. And, and, and it's very political work and it's very community work, community-based work. And, uh, and there was a period of time when I was a, actually a PhD student and I was working also for the health authority and I was asked to lead this study on... Um, on a, a group of people who were um, using injecting drugs and were contracting HIV. And this was like 20, bit about two decades ago. And I ran that study for the health authority. And one of the things that really struck me because I had a background in palliative care and I was working in AIDS, there was a whole lot of people dying in, in the, the drug using community for whom um, we never really thought about palliative care because most of the time, but not all of the time, the deaths were sudden. Um, and there was a whole group of workers that surrounded them that were in deep, deep stuffed grief. I worked with a nurse, uh, she was a street nurse at the time uh, named Kate Mahar, and she worked on that study with me. and. Um, and Kate and I had kept in contact, you know, over the years. And Kate, uh, she was really the radical nurse who kept coming back to me and kept saying, we need to do something, we need to do something, we need to do something. And finally said, okay, you're bugging me enough. Like, let's, let's figure out what we can do. And so I guess I've been almost a decade now into you know, doing work in the inner city communities in Victoria, where I live, and looking at and taking all those learnings from a palliative approach to care, and saying, how might we integrate a palliative approach to care into contexts of inequity? So I started working with Kate and with several community-based service providers. And I mean, their ask to me when I came to meet them for the very first time was they said, we need help with convincing the health authority that they need to fund something around this. And I said, well, I don't work for the health authority anymore and I don't have that kind of power, but maybe we could shine a light on kind of the issues that were occurring. And, um, and you know, as now as uh, somebody at a university, my way of shining a light is through research. So I said, would you walk alongside me 
and we'll develop this project together. We'll see if we can get it funded, which we did. And so has begun a, you know, well, maybe 10 or 11 year now relationship of ongoing kind of, I want to say, intersections of research, work, practice work and advocacy work around how do we actually bring forward kind of the experiences of people who are facing inequity. So those who are, you know, have precarious housing, those who use substances, those who are street involved, um, and how, how do we think about how we provide better care for them as they're coming toward the end of their lives? Because, you know, the average age of a homeless person in Canada is like between 34 and 49 years old. They're, they're dying young. They die of diseases that you and I, the general population just um, doesn't die that young from those illnesses. They actually, they die. There's high rates of cancer in those populations. They die of cancers that you and I would not die from. So we actually have a very um, active research program, re research slash practice slash advocacy program to say, hey, you know, like there's a group of people here and there's a lot of people who actually are not getting good care. Uh, they're not getting good care in general. And unless we can work alongside community to actually find solutions that are workable to improve um, the situation, it's just going to get worse. And that that's basically what we've been doing. So we have kind of an active hub um, here in Victoria. Uh, we work really closely with teams in Edmonton and Calgary and Toronto and now Thunder Bay. Um, so we have, a, you know, a big research program. We have a national community of practice um, that we run that kind of, you know, because even these providers, even the ones that are in palliative care, kind of outside the mainstream <laughs> palliative care um, and um, and, you know, and really just trying to move the needle. So um, that's the work I've been doing for, you know, the last decade. And it's um, sometimes it's heartbreaking but mostly it's amazing. And um, I, I often say that everything that I learned in my AIDS days is just coming back in spades to me and such, the, and the gifts that I got from learning, learning from mostly uh, gay men who, you know, had to activate their community to, you know, provide a bit of political momentum to to get people to take notice that it was a not a great situation. And um and you know, I think I learned so much about working with an in community and you know and how we kind of approach that in ways that is respectful and and you know trauma informed and um, you know, and with kind of our very strong harm reduction lens. And it's just taken me in lots of places that are just incredible. And those communities are full of amazingly gifted people and the workers around them uh, equally so. Uh, I remember those days of AIDS. Uh, I remember nursing before <laughs> AIDS and during and um it's it's around it's a long time it's several decades now and what i've been surprised by shouldn't have been but uh that's history that a lot of current education systems probably 
might not recognize, or I know lots of times nursing students are just, they, they weren't really aware of, of that and just the devastation that, uh, uh, around that and and stigma. And so I, I'd like to talk about that a little bit because I think I think you're talking about stigmatization a little bit here. Um, and you're talking about equity. And I'm interested in how our language of care that we speak, I guess, as individuals, but also perhaps as systems, might be contributing to stigmatization or excluding people and therefore are not equity uh based really even though you you might think you are does that make sense to you i think that mainstream healthcare systems do their best to think about ways to be more equitable um but our systems were never designed to be that way and you know you only have to look at our long history of colonization um, and, you know, by the way, you know, a large percentage of people that are in the inner city are urban off-reserve Indigenous people. And we have a westernized healthcare system, despite the fact that, you know, providers and we all try our best, there's a lot of moral judgment about things like drug use, about things like not being clean about I mean if you go into emergency departments and it's not a it's not a criticism of emergency departments but it's filled with signage around you know you know if you're not respectful to our staff if you're you know if you show any kind of violent behavior outward violent behavior you're basically going to get kicked out by a security guard and and I guess a lack of recognition that um, these spaces are not safe for a lot of people that I work with. And so it's it's not that people are trying to be awful and bad and misbehaved or or whatever, but um, but we're not, first of all, for a lot of the issues that people come in with, the emergency department is like the wrong avenue to come. It's, you, you know, people, people who have severe persistent mental illness, people who use substances, they can't sit in emergency rooms for eight hours. They just can't. And so instead of penalizing and punishing and that, you know, that when we have those kinds of rules in place for people, that becomes stigmatizing because, you know, they become the them, uh, the us and them, they become the them, those badly behaved people or those, you know, but the, the truth is, is that the system actually is not designed to support them. You know, we in in the work that we're doing with, you know, people who um, experience structural vulnerability, we we really take we really look at systems and we say, uh, we're going to do our best to shift and change systems. But in the meantime, we actually need to create something that um, that protects our clients from harm because the healthcare system is harmful um, for them. One of the prime examples that I observed of that quite recently um, was that I, I was in an emergency department with my daughter, uh, my 15 year old daughter. We were she was waiting to be seen and we were in that emergency department for probably six or seven hours on a. Uh, it was, I think it was a Thursday evening, and um, uh, we were sitting 
um, in the waiting room and a, a gentleman ran in and he was screaming and saying, please help me. My friend is outside and he's overdosing. And not one healthcare provider got up. And I, I like, and he was just like, please help me. He's dying. And not anybody got up to go outside the door of emergency to respond um, to what was happening. And my 15-year-old is sitting there saying to me, why are they not getting up and going outside and helping that mom, man, that man, mom? And I said, well, you know, what do you think? And I mean, we had this conversation after because I actually got up and I went outside as security was coming. So the response was the security guards. They phoned security when what that man needed was a reversal of his overdose, which, you know, by then the paramedics who were sitting in the ER came outside and, and, you know, and that was happening. And I thought, well, why did nobody respond? Like, why, why did every, like, it, you know, it seemed like forever that nobody was, was responding. It was probably about five minutes. A lot can happen with a hypoxic brain in five minutes. And, uh, and so I was sitting there and I looked over at the waiting room desk and there's a big sign there that says, ask for a naloxone kit, you know, and here's free naloxone kits. And I almost felt like saying, can you give me a naloxone kit so I can walk out your doors and go and reverse that man's overdose? And, um, you know, it, it was just to me, it was such the biggest example of and, and this is people feel this when they come into our healthcare system. These folks don't care about me. So if I don't have to go, I won't. I'm only going to go when I'm in desperate need. It, it seems to me I don't know what was going through the minds of those providers. I would have loved to have asked them. I would think as a healthcare provider, your immediate response would be to get up and just walk outside. I literally, the person was right outside the door. Mm -hmm. It was shocking to me. Yeah. So I'm glad that person got care. And uh, that idea about um, stigmatization and how that is lived out is important for us to think about. Along with that, just in telling the story, and as we, I've been listening to you uh, in this interview, you are using language that I just want to clarify because language can stigmatize. So uh, what is the appropriate non-stigmatizing language to refer to people who, you know, use substances that are homeless, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a simple answer to it because I think it really depends on who you're talking to. But I always center, I always center the people first. So I would never use language like drug addict, although, although in the community, among people who use drugs themselves, they might use that language. Um, but I always center people. So you you will notice that you know, I will say people who experience housing precarity, people who experience, uh, you know, inequities and and so, so that we're 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 not kind of othering uh, the person. Um, but I don't 
you know, there isn't really a correct answer. I think it it depends on where you are in your context. But I always just think you're always safe if you center people first because they're people. They're not their they're not their addiction. They're not their social circumstance. They're people who happen to be in particular situations. And the other thing is like I think generally there's so much curiosity that we have in healthcare about well what got people into these situations and it's like to me um that that i i i shut that curiosity down because i i really think if people want to tell me about their life they will and often people do but you know it's like i don't really care when i come in relation with another person I want to meet that person where they're at. That's a that's a very common uh, kind of way in harm reduction. You often see we're going to meet people where they're at, and and that means where they're at in whatever it is that they want to tell about themselves, whatever it is that they want to share about themselves, and um, and also to meet people where they're at physically, which is really we really take that into account when we're trying to think about how we best uh, think about, well, services in palliative care. So we, in our, in our research work, we're very, very um, strongly connected to the mainstream palliative care services and usually uh, to the one or two people within those mainstream palliative care services that really also feel that this is an area that we need to step into. And then we think, you know, I would say I would say that we we spend a lot of time thinking about what we learn from our research and how it is that we can better, you know, position ourselves moving forward. So, for example, you know, one of one of the things that that we've found in our research is, you know, we have this whole concept in palliative care about supporting people to die at home. So how, how do you support people to die at home if they don't have stable housing? How do you support people to be where they're at when, you know, when they live in a tent and our healthcare services don't want to provide healthcare in a tent? Um, you know, so like we're very creative. Um, and I, I I feel so grateful and fortunate that uh, like I work with people in health authorities that um, that are really wanting to shift in ways that are going to be good for people so that they can get care. And I think that if we can show good models for care, uh, for palliative care, that that we can actually show good models of care generally uh, for people that are facing various structural inequities. And so when you say structural inequities, can you just explain that? Yeah, so I use structure because uh, to denote that when when we our moral feeling is that these are individual problems that these are that and you know we see this in all kinds of kind of neoliberal kind of inklings of you know it's your fault if you just stopped using drugs if you just got a job if you like those kinds of things which which puts the onus on an individual when i use structural it's really to explicitly say that there are various things, various contexts in which people are brought up in that actually have created barriers to them living uh, their lives in certain ways. So 
if you grow, we know that if you grow up in poverty, you don't have the same opportunities that other people, that you know, people who don't grow up in poverty have. And those are because of the way our systems are structured to not support, uh, you know, people living in poverty adequately to enable them to be on a level playing field as everybody else. And so structural inequities is meant to help us understand that it's the structures and the systems that actually don't help us to address primarily the social determinants of health, you know, education, income, um, you know, opportunities, that some people actually don't have the same opportunities as others. Health equity is really that concept of, you know, of trying to, via our institutions, try to create a level playing field so that everybody is has, you know, the same kind of experiences to live a, a happy and full life. It's impossible to manage an ongoing illness if you have no housing precarity, if you have housing precarity, if you don't have a fixed address, if you don't have a steady income. And, you know, in the context of the work that we do, um, you know, I, I always say that the primary, inter primary palliative approach intervention is actually to address the social determinants of health. So, you know, in mainstream palliative care, we often focus on symptoms. How do we get people's pain managed? We need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to get people's pain managed. In this context, I often say, like, how do we work on, you know, getting some housing stability for this person? How do we work on trying to figure out who their natural networks already are? How do we work with the the providers that are closest to them, which might mean housing workers, harm reduction workers, that, you know, we're, we don't want to pilot in. I don't want to pilot in as a nurse and say you need to do X, Y, and Z because that that piloting in doesn't work. So it's, it's like, how do we work within the communities? So, I mean, we have... Um, we were able to get sustainable funding for a small team uh, in Victoria um, called the Palliative Outreach Resource Team or the Port Team. Uh, and the team is embedded in the inner city community uh, and they work alongside housing workers and harm reduction workers and you know people that work with folks who are street involved to actually plan care in a way that will work. Uh, and and the, the, our, some of the core interventions are around food security, housing, um, income. Uh, but, you know, if people could be in absolute drastic pain, but they will not get their pain managed because it takes too much time. They have to be on the street corner panhandling because they don't have any money. And what do we, we all need to survive is money. And so, and so, it's, you know, if you think about a palliative approach and the concept of, of adaptation, our interventions actually need to be adapted. Um, so there's no like algorithm, clinical pathway that necessarily is going to work for every person. Uh, I, I don't think those algorithms and clinical pathways, you know, maybe for some things, right, you have a stroke protocol or things like that. But when you're dealing with people, real lives and the complexities that are associated with that, 
then you need individualized approaches. And that's what this team does. And I mean, for me, the biggest joy in my career is, you know, being able to sit alongside and plan with my colleagues in practice. Okay, you know, here's what we've learned from our research. Oh, here's the realities of practice in the system. Okay, let's find a way through. And I think that's the thing that nurses actually are really good at if they if they're if they're given the permission to do so. I, almost every nurse I know has the creativity to do things outside of the box if we let them do that. And and that's the joy of working in these teams is seeing, like I would say, and I think my physician colleagues that work alongside us would agree that these are these teams that, you know, there's one that exists in in Victoria, there's one in in Calgary, there's one in a uh, little one in Edmonton, one in Toronto, the Peach team. You know, a lot of these teams are very nurse-led teams with physician backup or physician working working alongside and uh you know we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of turnover in our teams because you know people are enacting their full scope of practice and feeling valued for doing that that's that's amazing well i work you know i work with some amazing like people at executive levels um that are going yeah this is like fantastic <laughs> and that so- helps yeah, and I and I think that um, you know I've recognized that, and part of the reason that I've started this podcast was to uh, you know try and surface and illuminate, shine a light on that kind of possibility, and uh, we have educated nurses able to do these things. But if people don't understand that that's part of the role and capacity capability, um, we can't move in those spaces. So. Uh, thanks, thanks for that reminder, Kelly. And and I'm still stuck on the idea when you're talking about home deaths and thinking about the assumptions that we have just in throwing that language around. And, and it's so embedded in our care as like a home death or a hospital death. But uh, you're raising really important questions around where where do folks generally die. Yeah. Where do these folks generally die? They die. They die in acute care hospitals. They die in emergencies, and then they die on the street. They die in crappy yeah. motels. They die in all over the place. But you know, I mean, I feel it's a question in our community. We have a big project going on um, right now, looking at death in the context of like dying at home in the context of inequity, and and one of the things that's coming out of that project. So you know, I'll have a lot of people say, well, we need a hospice for the homeless. And I'm like, well, and I'm always, I'm always like, well, we don't know that, you know, we don't know that, like, let's go and figure out, you know, well, you know, because when you create a hospice for the homeless, just like we created hospices for AIDS, for people with AIDS, we create our own structure of marginalization. And, you know, and so we had this opportunity, we have a shelter that we work with a lot. Uh, and a and a community based organization, the Victoria Kool Aid Society, who's a major housing provider in Victoria uh, for people who face structural inequities, and they have one in one of their shelters. They have two family rooms that have been underutilized, and so the the uh, manager said, you know, 
like, and these beds are not like, they're not medical beds. There's no healthcare staff or anything, but the, you know, they said, God, we've got these two rooms they are never being used. And so it's like, well, we have, we have people that die, that die in hospital where they don't want to be. And this is, and it's a harm reduction shelter. Like it's, you know, there's places to use drugs and things like that. So, so we brought the, we brought Kool-Aid and the health authority together, the palliative team. And we said, well, you know, can we do something? Can we send something, a proposal to BC housing to change the designations for those rooms? We did that, got that done. And we're planning for these two family rooms embedded in a shelter where people can, we can support people to die because, you know, and if we can work with maybe a subset of like home care nurses and home support workers to support that shelter staff around the me- the kind of healthcare pieces that are required, why can't we do that? Why not? And that's kind of the attitude that we've created in our community is, oh, let's try. And may- wouldn't it be better if we had little clusters of places that keep people where they are and they're comfortable and around communities that they feel loved by and safe rather than putting them in a hospital where, you know, the security, the, the staff calls security because they don't like the look of the visitor that's coming in to see them. And I get that. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that it's a, it's a reality, but it's like, okay, well, yeah, so let's do something different. And I just feel grateful that I work with people here that have that kind of flexible mindset. It's marvelous. It sounds like a great uh, model. If I can just, uh, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about. Uh, one, just a quick um, comment, I think, again, talking around how the uh, terminology that we use within our systems are is uh, not intentionally but it is stigmatizing or marginalizing some people, perhaps many people. And I'm thinking about self-management and all the work that goes into self-management in terms of uh, chronic progressive uh, life-limiting illness and thinking around the usual rhetoric, the usual uh, guidance that we give around self-management for so many things, including diabetes, that you know, people, the communities that you're talking about would theoretically require, but how different it is and, and lived out. And so just even our terminology and that, that, that needs looked at maybe as well, because there's expectations built into that and assumptions. Well, sure. And if you, I mean, there's assumptions built in everywhere. And so even something that seems as simple as getting to a doctor's appointment, if you don't have money for a bus or a taxi, and you certainly don't have a car, how do you get there? Yeah, how do you get yeah. there? Yeah, like you know, or you know, we have we have several folks that you know are being seen by the cancer agency, and you know, and they, you know, we we see many people in our port team who could benefit from chemotherapy, for example. Um, but they can't get it because the, you know, the chemotherapeutic agents that they would, that they would, um, excrete from their urine, um, isn't necessarily safe for 
like, you know, if you're living in a some kind of communal shared bathroom situation. So because you don't have your own bathroom, you can't get chemotherapy. Like, wow. Like it's, it's so, um, yeah, I, I think people don't really realize. No, and so no, it's like trying to break down those, like, these are the kinds of situations we're discovering. And so we have, you know, quite a nice relationship going with cancer agency and saying, okay, well, like, maybe we can train up one of your volunteer drivers to bring people to appointments or maybe you need to think about housing when you're thinking about, you know, a prescribing of certain kinds of treatments. Because, you know, it seems like crazy to me that somebody would not be offered a potentially, you know, uh, therapeutic that would actually improve and maybe give them a longer length of life because they don't have a bathroom yeah. or they don't have, you know, a stable living situation. So what happens is they go, sorry, you know, like this person just like they're they're not in a situation where, you know, we lose them to follow up. And it's like, well, why are you losing them to follow up? Because they can't get there. And because what you're telling them they need to have happen is not possible for them in this in the present situation. So do we just say, okay, well, too bad for you. That's not equity. <laughs> no. You're giving us so much to think about. I'm I'm aware that uh, time is ticking by here, and I'm wondering if we might end our conversation today with uh, a question that I often talk about in terms of other uh, contexts, I guess, or or topics in in terms of this podcast, and that is around difficult conversations. So we talk about difficult conversations in practice a lot, and. Um, in terms of serious illness. And I'm wondering if what your thoughts are, what are the difficult conversations or are they the same? Uh, is there any difference? What is the nature of the conversations that you would classify as difficult for people experiencing the structural inequities that you're talking about? I mean, a lot of the folks that we work with see death every day. So death is surrounding them. There's death happening because of the uh, toxic drug supply and drug overdose. So there's those kinds of deaths that are happening. There's, you know, people are living with multiple comorbid. So so they know about death. It's not that they know, don't know about death. But the other thing that people in these communities um, are and witness is a lot of survival. And so one of the most interesting things that we have found in our research is that is that there is a survival imperative. So, you know, it's like, uh, despite the fact that you might have all of these health issues that, you know, maybe are going to lead to your death. We talk when we talk to people, a lot of people are like, you know, I survived this. I'm going to I've you know, I've sur I've I've had 12 drug overdoses and I've not died. So I'm not going to die from this. So, you know, is that a difficult conversation? I, I don't know, but it's a different conversation. And, yes. uh, and I think the other thing is that, you know, if you, you are, if you are somebody who has lived your life with so little, what people often say to us is, oh my God, I'm so glad that I got this cancer diagnosis because 
it, and, and that I'm in palliative care because somebody finally recognizes that my pain is real. Somebody finally recognizes that, you know, I need this help and this help and this help. And I mean, we have interviews with people who just say, and my life has never been better since I got this diagnosis and, and I got connected to this team. So it's, it's different because when, when you, when you work with and care for people who have lived a life with being stigmatized, being treated poorly, not being believed by people in the healthcare system, all of the sudden you wrap around these very cool palliative care people where the care is like completely the opposite. And, and they're so happy. And, you know, to me, it's tragic that we have to wait till that point for people to feel like they're really cared for and loved. You know, probably all my scholarly, like, colleagues and everything will cringe when I talk about love. But, uh, you know, people need need to feel cared for. That's the bottom line in any care we give in our healthcare system. People need to feel cared for, that we know them as people um, and not as their disease, not as an, a room number in a, on a ward. Um, and, and that goes for anybody. And I think that if we, if, if we could make that our goal in every interaction that we have with every patient family, no matter who they are, we've done a lot, regardless of their illness. You've given us so much to think about, and I'm so grateful. These are areas we've talked about today that aren't part of mainstream nursing education either, I don't think. Some, we do talk about social determinants, but um, I would say in terms of uh, palliative care, for instance, that we wouldn't be thinking about the things that you've invited us to think about today. So thank you so much. I'm wondering if there are any particular resources or anything that you can guide us to that if someone wanted to have a look, we'll put these on our website as well. Maybe I could just say you'll pass those along to me and we'll put them up on the website so that uh, if anyone wants to follow up with any of the uh, comments and issues. Thanks again so much, Kelly, and for your leadership and advocacy and passion uh, and joy that I that I hear uh, from you talking about the possibilities for nursing practice in all sorts of places that people live. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We're grateful to those of you who continue to follow and share this podcast on social media and help our audience grow. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at www.radicalnursetalk.com or by emailing us at radicalnursetalk at gmail.com. The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos-Foley. Social media by Amy Strachan.